Welcome to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm Paige Donner, the host and producer. This food and wine show is being brought to you directly from Paris, France. Here, we give you a taste of this delicious world with all its colorful and diverse personalities that make up the Paris culinary landscape. So, sit back and relax and enjoy Paris good food and wine. Season 6 is brought to you generously by IOT Shipping. Find us at iotshipping.xyz. We use the Internet of Things to track and trace your value assets throughout transport. iotshipping.xyz. Water into wine. For episode 50, we're talking about water and wine. The first interview is with the author of a new guidebook, Find the Wallace Fountains, Find Paris. Barbara Lambesis had the brilliant idea to not just tell the history of these statuesque cast-iron sculptures that grace our city and provide potable running water for thirsty Parisians, but cleverly thought to fashion walking tours around them, too. The Wallace Fountains are one of the magical elements of Paris that you can walk by dozens, if not hundreds of times, and not really ever give much thought to them. But wait till you hear this conversation. I guarantee you'll be motivated to seek out these wonderful purveyors of fresh, potable water. Then, back down in Bordeaux for the Great Wine Capital's 20th Anniversary Conference, I got to sit down with wine journalist and consummate Bordeaux insider, Jane Anson. She gives us a sneak peek into her newest book, Inside Bordeaux which will be available in bookstores early spring 2020, right about March. We also delved into the topic of what makes Bordeaux such a great wine capital, and, even more, what are the necessary elements that make a wine region particularly attractive to visitors. So this, our 50th episode of Paris Good Food and Wine, my podcast is now almost as old as me, at least in numbers, is devoted to my two favorite beverages, Water and wine. Sounds almost sacred, doesn't it? Well, anyway, I hope you enjoy. Episode 50 of Paris Good Food and Wine is being brought to you by Paris Food and Wine. You can find them at parisfoodandwine.net and Bordeaux Food and Wine. You can find them at bordeauxfoodandwine.com. For me, that's another one of the emblematic sounds of Il Saint Louis. Are the horses clip clopping by? Coming from the, uh, the the Republican Guard, uh, you know, and it's 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 wonderful to see them on the street, and it's very symbolic. Barbara Lambesis, I am so thrilled to be sitting here on Il Saint Louis with you, uh, an area a neighborhood that we both love. But to your credit, you are the author of a new guidebook called the Wallace Fountains. And we'll go into all the fun uh, walking tours that are, are designed around your book uh, that gives a lot of history to Sir Richard Wallace. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you to give our listeners just a brief introduction to who you are and how you came to write this very clever fabulous, historically perceptive guidebook to Paris 
focused on these famous Wallace fountains? Well, I came to Paris uh, for the first time just to live here part-time in 2013. I'm a retired American entrepreneur, and uh, being retired, I now have free time to do the things that I wanted. So I came to Paris, and the second year, I loved it so much the first year I decided I was going to spend every fall in Paris. So the second year I came, I was walking around, um, taking in all the sights, and I came across a Wallace fountain on the street. And I said, hmm, I wonder what this is. And I went back and did a little research and found out a little bit about their history and then discovered there were many of them all around the city. So I took it upon myself to go walking with a purpose, and that was to find the fountains, that that would give me something, a reason to walk the streets of Paris, which, as you know, is so much fun to do anyway. So I took my uh, my little notebook and my pencil and my camera and decided I was going to go out and find Wallace Fountains. Well, the first year I found 38, and then I was sort of hooked on it and decided to do greater research and discovered there were 103 fountains in Paris. So the second year when I came back, doggone, I'm going to find all the rest of those. (laughs) And it took me to parts of Paris I would never have gone to and into neighborhoods I had no reason to explore. And as a result of finding the fountains, I found the real Paris. I found wonderful little gardens and parks and churches and interesting uh, street art and wonderful architectural uh, elements on buildings. And it was so much fun. I thought, I, I bet you other people would like to do this too. And they can find the real Paris by searching for the fountains. So that's how I put together the guidebook. It's bilingual. It's both in French and in English. And it's called Find the Wallace Fountains, Find Paris. And it contains 21 self-guided walks. Each can be done in a half a day or less. They're not very long. They can be done by visitors and um, residents alike and of all ages. And they take you into different areas of the city where you go on a guided walk that starts at a metro station and ends at a metro station. And in the meantime, you explore wonderful neighborhoods as you search for the Wallace Fountains. You know, it is just so clever. And so now we're going to... I mean, kudos to you, really, Barbara. Really kudos to you for, for engaging in such a, an honoring type of a book to Paris and the history of Paris. So now we're going to go back up just a moment because I, I just, it just dawned on me. We're speaking like two Parisians, as if everybody knows what a Wallace fountain is. <laughs> Oops. So let's go into a little bit of detail of what a Wallace fountain is. And I have to say, when I was first introduced to you, I remember my first reaction, and to your book, my first reaction was, you know, I'm so glad that somebody did this and somebody thought to do this because the accessibility of water in this city in Paris, especially during the summer months when it get it can get so hot. This last summer we had two heat waves, um, upwards of 45 degrees Celsius, and those fountains can sometimes really actually literally be a lifesaver. So describe to us, what is a Wallace fountain? Wallace fountains are... cast iron sculptures that are about nine feet tall. Uh, They weigh about 1,300 pounds, and they are sculpturally designed to be symbolic, and they provide pure drinking water 
to the people who pass by. They were given to the city of, uh, of Paris by an Englishman named Sir Richard Wallace. And he was here, uh, he inherited a great deal of money. And he was here during the Franco-Prussian War and the siege of Paris and the commune period that followed. And a great deal of destruction uh, was happened during that time to the infrastructure that brought clean water into the city. So as a result, water became uh, very expensive and the clean fresh water was very expensive. And people in poor neighborhoods and the working class simply couldn't afford the water. It was cheaper and safer for them to drink beer and wine. And so as a result, in the poorer neighborhoods, because there was a lack of access to clean drinking water, there was a great deal of alcoholism and drunkenness, and drunkenness, and that, of course, was, was destroying the fabric of communities and the life of communities. And so Richard Wallace, being a, a, a very kind and a very generous man, said that uh, it, it's important that everybody has access to clean water. But Sir Richard Wallace was an art collector and a connoisseur, so he didn't want to just put up a fountain. He wanted to put up something that would be lasting, that would be beautiful, that would enhance the environment, that would have symbolic meaning, and that was lovely to look at. And so he created some sketches himself and then gave them to um, a sculptor who then transformed his ideas into these beautiful sculptural works of art. They, as I said, they stand about nine feet tall, and uh, they're very symbolic. Uh, they have four caryatids, and the caryatid is a classical Greco-Roman female figure that's generally used to hold up an entablature or a dome with her hands or her head. So these hold up a dome, a beautiful dome on the top of the fountain, and then from the dome comes a stream of water. And it's elevated and off the ground, so it's very easy to put your water bottle in and fill it when you're thirsty and need to, to have a drink. And the, each of the caryatids are symbolic of virtues of humankind. They stand for kindness, generosity, simplicity, and sobriety. So Richard Wallace's idea was is that when you went to get a drink, you had a chance to nourish uh, or refresh your body and quench your thirst, but also a chance to nourish your soul because he wanted people to reflect on the virtues of being a kinder and a more generous and a more simple person and, a so and, and sober so we can do our best work. So they're, they're wonderfully symbolic. They're beautiful, and they've been around for almost 150 years now. You know, you've done some marvelous research, obviously, because you've written a whole book, and your website is very informative as well. But, you know, two of the things that really stayed in my mind um, after reading through your research materials was, back to the point you just made, there was so little potable water at that time when he established these uh, freshwater fountains that um, people were actually soaking bread in wine and feeding that to their babies. And then the other point, um, and I had not been aware of that, and then the other point, too, was that there were water vendors throughout the city who were actually bottling water from the Seine, and there was no sewage system at the time, so sewage was going straight into the Seine. And so people were getting sick from the water and were actually paying more for the bottled water than they were for the wine or the beer. I mean, how much research did you have to... How did you unearth those kinds of factoids because th those are fascinating and I had not been aware of that. 
Well, first, I just want to clarify something. They, they Back in the 1870s, they weren't um, bottling the water. They were actually bringing it on carts and hauling it in buckets to people. So you were buying it by the bucket load. And, of course, that water had come from the Seine and was, you know, not not potable, not, not hygienic. Uh, so it was pretty nasty water. Um, but that was what was av- available to in the working-class neighborhoods. And so it, it made sense for them to, to not drink it because they were just going to get sick. Uh, so the only thing else they had to drink were alcoholic beverages, beer and wine. And it really was a difficult time. So that made the access to clean water even more important. And Richard Wallace saw this need, and he stepped up using his private money for the public good. Well, and that brings us to, let's focus a little bit on Sir Richard Wallace. You've mentioned him um, in your last comments. But I think, too, another very surprising thing is that he was an Englishman. And so now, from what I understand, he was um, an Englishman. He was an illegitimate child. So he actually grew up here uh, his entire life in France, if I'm not mistaken. Though, um, from what I understand, he did spend uh, some of the re- some of his golden years uh, back in England. Um, but is he not uh, buried in Père Lachaise? Yes, he is. He's buried in the Hartford Wallace to family tomb there. Uh, so you can visit that <laughs> if you're in Paris and uh, pay homage to the man who made possible the beautiful Wallace Fountains, uh, as well as, I've hoped, stop outside the cemetery where there is a fountain and fill your water bottle. Let's get into a little bit of your walking tours. Um, now, your book is available at Shakespeare and Company, I know, here in Paris, which is, that's quite an honor. I mean, it's also available from your website, and I know that your website is a nonprofit organization, but you have generously, from what I've seen from your website, you've generously made available 21 walking tours that are downloadable from your website. Let's talk a little bit about those. Certainly. Well, of course, we'd love to have you get the guidebook, which is also available through our website, which is Wallace fountains.org or at, available at Shakespeare and Company and also available in London through the, at the Wallace Collection Gifts uh, store uh, at the museum. But we, our object and that is our meaning, the Society of the Wallace Fountains, which we created here in France as a nonprofit or uh, international nonprofit organization to preserve and protect and promote the fountains of Paris and to try to be guardians of them into the future. Um, we are encouraging people to learn about them and go f- and have fun going to find them. So we created 21 self-guided walking tours, each in a different section of, uh, of Paris, and each two that starts and ends at a metro stop and allows you to spend less than a half a day wandering around searching for fountains and finding interesting things in, in in the real Paris as well. And those each of those walks can be downloaded from the website free of charge. We hope you'll give a little donation of a euro or two if you download it, but it's not necessary. And you can put that on your mobile device and then take that and use that. So you have two options. You can either use a guidebook or you can use um, the downloadable walks on your mo- mobile devices. 
And I can just see so many children's eyes and parents too just lighting up. I mean, what a fun activity to do with your kids or your nieces and nephews or your school children, you know, for a, for a morning or for an afternoon. Now, we talked about the style of the sort of like the statue, the, the statue sculpture. But there are several that are wall mounted from what I understand. I mean, I, I, and there's one that really comes to mind. I wanted to ask you, Barbara. Is one of the wall-mounted ones that have been um, faithfully restored, is that the one right outside of the Jardin de Plantes over on the sort of like the Juso side? Yes, it, it, yes, indeed. Actually, Richard Wallace originally funded 40 of the tall uh, grand model fountains with the caryatids and the sculptural look, and he funded 10 of the wall-mounted fountains. Unfortunately, there's only one left, and that is the one that's over um, in the 5th arrondissement on the wall of the Jardin de Plans. And uh, it's accessible. It has been restored. Um, unfortunately, it, it was restored and in, in, in put back in 2015. It needs a little painting right now. needs a little bit of refurbishing. But, yes, it's the only one that's left. Richard Wallace actually had the concept of the two kinds of fountains and the wall mounted fountains were designed because they took less space and they were less expensive to manufacture and to install but unfortunately only one has survived i'm paige donner host and producer of paris good food and wine now you can find paris good food and wine on iHeartRadio as well as on spotify and also as always on itunes soundcloud Tune in radio and Stitcher. That one I think is going to be, I'm going to ask you next, which ones are your favorites, if you have any favorites. But um, I, I think that that's, that's one that's going to always be one of my favorites, especially it came to my rescue this summer during one of, the, during one of our heat waves. I, I took a walk through the Jardin de Plant, and when I came out the other side, you can enter through the Seine side, but you can come out that, that sort of that Juso side. And um, there it was, that fountain, and it was, run, you know, it was spouting fresh water, fresh, cool water. And I filled up my water bottle and I doused my whole head. I mean, it really saved me this summer. My, let's see, my other um, two or say three favorite ones are, well, of course, the one right outside the Shakespeare and Company. That's a lovely one. And it's so attention getting. Uh, the one on the uh, left bank side of the Pont Neuf. That's so iconic. I mean, that you know, you have the Pont Neuf, and then you have the Wallace Fountain, and then there's one in, in Saint Paul, Metro Saint Paul, in the Marais that I always walk by as well. And um, I always, I don't always have a water bottle with me. I used to when I lived in Los Angeles, like eons ago. But here, I I'm out of that habit. Um, which was another little funny fact that I found on your website as well about how there used to be uh, tin cups that were attached to the fountains, but no more. Tell us, tell us why there are no more, that, that's no more the case. Yes, originally uh, all of the Wallace fountains had t two tin cups that were on a chain and attached to the fountain so that users could just use the cup to get a drink. And then generally they would put it under the stream. There was a constant stream of water that flows from the top of the dome into the basin. So they would put, they would leave the, the, the cups in, uh, in the basin so that the flowing water would sort of clean them up a little bit. But in 1952, the Department of Health here in Paris removed them for hygienic purposes, which of course makes perfect sense now that we know about how disease is spread to, to do that. So uh, 
but the water department is really at this point and the city of Paris is really urging people to have their own water bottle and to refill them at not only the Wallace Fountains but any access to free public water and begin to try to eliminate the, uh, the um, waste from bottled water, from buying bottled water. So people can save money. They don't have to buy bottled water, and they can certainly drink from, from the fountains. There is a, a misconception that the water coming from the water f- uh, the Wallace Fountains is not potable, but it's perfectly safe to drink. So we encourage people to use the fountains. I'm glad you underscored that, because that, I think, is the, really the biggest surprise that people and and I think when you're a visitor to Paris you really don't readily assume that you can drink that water I mean in what other city um, I remember my first reaction to you was gosh I wish Los Angeles had this kind of water service because I mean that's really a city that that could use it I mean just like Paris it's it's they're well used here in Paris anyway um my other question was to you do you have a favorite or a favorite two or three and then also what's what's one of the ones that is the most out of the way that you can think of well you know they're all cast from the same mold so they're all identical so it doesn't become which individual fountain is your favorite. It becomes more what location is your favorite. Where do you really love seeing this fountain? And uh, for me, it is as it is at Place Louis Armstrong. And it's just in the most beautiful setting. You look down one uh, to, to the south, and it's sort of on a hill, so you can look down to the south uh, and uh, see a beautiful vista that way. You look to the north, you see the Dome of the Pantheon. It's just in a, in a lovely little park setting, and so it's probably my favorite setting. Now, as far as which one is the most um, inaccessible or far away, Probably on the outskirts and quite a ways away uh, is on 10 Esplanade Pierre Vidal Naquet, and that's over by the um, University of Paris, Diderot, and it's in their Esplanade. And you can't miss it because it's one of the few that are not painted green, it's painted a bright yellow. There were a number of Wallace fountains that were put in place in 2011, the newer ones, and they were put in the 13th arrondissement because they were beginning to do some major renovation and they felt that it would be fun to temporarily although it's been for several years now paint them a different color so in the 13th arrondissement you'll find a pink one a red one a blue one and a yellow one so that makes a really fun walk and that's probably one of the longer walks on the uh in the guide Uh, but um, you'll get to see the colorful wallace fountains Gosh, that's really a fascinating. Um, I, I can't wait to do some of these walks myself. This is yeah, it's really wonderful. So kudos to you. And again, it's wallacefountains.org. And that's spelled W-A-L-L-A-C-E, fountains. And Barbara Lambesis, you are the president of the nonprofit. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, it is an international nonprofit organization registered in France. And our mission is to preserve and protect and promote the Wallace Fountains. But also our mission is to recognize and encourage philanthropy in the spirit of Richard Wallace. That is, 
public uh, and nonprofit organizations partnering with individuals of private wealth to do something for the common good, as Richard Wallace did when he gave the uh, city of Paris these beautiful fountains. Well, now that is a beautiful sentiment to close on and very inspiring, very inspiring too. Thank you so very much for doing your wonderful book and for doing this interview with me today. It was my pleasure. Season 6 is brought to you generously by IOT Shipping. Find us at iotshipping.xyz. We use the Internet of Things to track and trace your value assets throughout transport. IOTShipping.xyz IOT Shipping IOT Shipping uses the Internet of Things technology to track and trace your value assets throughout the transport process. Data is monitored by temperature, geolocation, and movement so that you always know where your value assets are and in what condition they are in. Contact them for more information and for a quote at iotshipping.xyz. That's iotshipping.xyz. Next up is Jane Anson, wine journalist and Bordeaux insider. Find this and more episodes of Paris Good Food and Wine on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, Tune in Radio, and also on iTunes. I'm Paige Donner. You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine. The show is produced and broadcast from Paris, France. It's Paris's first ever homegrown English language radio show about food and wine. Episode 50 of Paris Good Food and Wine is being brought to you by Paris Food and Wine. You can find them at parisfoodandwine.net and Bordeaux Food and Wine. You can find them at BordeauxFoodandWine.com. Jane Anson, after all these years of bumping into you at the the most wonderful wineries here in, in Bordeaux, I finally get a chance to actually really sit down and speak with you about, too, specifically now, your upcoming book, which I know you have been barreling through in terms of really working so hard to, to get finished. And it's, uh, this, it's called, the title is Inside Bordeaux, and it's going to be coming out in March. But more details, I'm going to leave it to you. <laughs> okay, thanks so much, Paige. And I agree, really great to sit down and actually chat with you. So thank you for asking me. Um, yes, yeah, so this book, Inside Bordeaux, is the result of two and a half, three years research. And it's really been a fascinating journey and <laughs> a lot of, a lot of work. What I've tried to do here is to look at how Bordeaux is today. So to take a slightly different approach, there are lots of wonderful, wonderful reference books about Bordeaux that look a lot about the history of the chateaus here. And I've tried to look at what's happening to Bordeaux today. Why should people relook at it? Why should we? It's the region which people know so well that sometimes they kind of gloss over it. They forget about it or they assume that nothing changes, that it's traditional. So I've been looking, I've picked about 700 chateaus out of the 7,000 that are here, but that's that's a lot. I've really not just focused on the top chateaus. I've gone to all of the different appellations. And every estate that is in this book, there's a reason for it being there. I've looked at why should you care about it? What's new? Who's here? What's different? Is it organic, biodynamic? You know, what are the things that are, that are changing? 
And the other approach that I've done, which I hope is kind of different from the normal way to look at Bordeaux, is I've gone a lot under the surface, looking at the terroir, looking at the soils of Bordeaux. Again, we tend to think Burgundy is the place in, in France which owns the concept of terroir. But really, when you look at Bordeaux, it's a hugely complicated region for its soils. My personal opinion of why we don't talk so much about Bordeaux terroir is because it's kind of too complicated. There are so many different soil types, so many different. It's a big, big region. So I've worked with this wonderful guy, a professor called Kies van Leeuwen at the um, Institute of Enology here in Bordeaux. And he has been really a wonderful help to me in terms of understanding. He's done completely new books, new um, maps for the book, which haven't been seen before. So we're doing things like looking at all of the different limestone areas across the right bank, rather than just in Santamillian. We're looking at all of the different gravel terraces across the left bank, so through the Medoc, but also down to Pesach and Grave, so that people have got the tools to kind of work out for, for themselves where they should go to in different kind of vintages. So rather than having to just go to the top names, you can also think, oh, look, that spot's got great terroir as well. It's going to work in this kind of vintage, and the wines are a lot less expensive. So I'm really trying to help people to explore Bordeaux in a different way from the, how they have before. And it'll be yeah, out in... Um, out in March, proper launch in April of next year. That's a very interesting perspective. It sounds then you've really gone, as no pun intended, deep digging into the soil. That's, but, um, and also you said that you didn't really necessarily select just for superstar s- chateaus. You sort of selected to have a maybe a panora- more of a panoramic vision. Are there any appellations that... I know you're based here in Bordeaux. You are a Bordelaise. I mean, really, uh, a transplant. I guess you're originally English. Um, but since you are, uh, you have put down substantial roots here in Bordeaux, uh, also as a, and as a wine writer, as personally and as a wine writer, are there, are there any appellations though, that even with all the years experience that you have here, are there any discoveries that you made while you were writing your book? Yes. One of the biggest discoveries that I made was getting to know Lalonde de Pomerol better, so Pomerol is an appellation, obviously, that I love. Who doesn't? Who, who knows Bordeaux? And I probably spent, previous to researching this book, when I go over that way, I tend to stop in Pomerol and spend a lot of time there. And during the course of researching this book, I went over the border on a regular basis and got to know Lalonde much better. And it's probably, for me, there, Fronzac and Santa Steph are probably the three that I would. I have the most recommendations of where people maybe don't know about and could get to know a lot better. Certainly in Lalonde, there are a couple of spots which everybody says they have Petrus's terroir, that sticky clay that Petrus has, but it's actually incredibly rare in Bordeaux to find it. But Lalonde de Pomerol has two or three spots that, that does have really that kind of sticky clay terroir. And that's super exciting. I can't wait for people to, to read the book and, and to, and to you know, discover those things, which is just exactly what I did as I was doing the research. All right. Well, fabulous. I can't wait. I can't wait to read it. Um, So can we ask, can we go in a little bit to your background? You have emerged as one of the most important wine writers of the day. And I I find it very interesting, the combination of you being both English, but, but based in Bordeaux. And I know you do travel a lot for the wine tastings and your professional commitments. How did you, just for our listeners, how did you find yourself in this wine world? How did you become, uh, how did you start to train your palate and become so insightful in terms of writing about wine? So I moved to Bordeaux in 2003, which now crazily is 16 years ago. But when I moved here, 
I was interested in wine. I'd begun to write about wine. Um, I'd had you know various trips to wine regions, notably to South Africa, but and, and Italy were probably the two regions that I knew the best. But I was coming here as a writer. So I was a journalist before I became a wine writer. And I think that was hugely helpful for me when I moved here, partly because I wasn't intimidated by moving to Bordeaux because I didn't know enough about the fact that there were so many wonderful wine writers who wrote about Bordeaux and who had such knowledge. And because I wasn't specifically in the wine world, I think I, I wasn't intimidated by that fact. And I approached Bordeaux as any other topic as a writer. So research and getting to know the people and looking for the human interest stories. I think that was really my way in. And still what I find fascinating of what drives people to make these wines. What's the, what are the underlying things that, that go into making a wine? And when I'm trying to talk about wine to a reader, to a listener, to a, to a drinker, to somebody before me who loves wine, I'm not trying to say to them, this is what I think and this is what you should know from me. I'm really trying to say, what are all of these different elements that go into this wine so that they can make up their own minds if they like it or not? So if you like a wine which is full and fruity and structured and tannic or elegant, you don't need me to tell you that. What I can do is say to you, this is the style of wine this is and then you can decide if you like it or not. And I think that comes from just this idea of taking a slightly more, a slightly more, not I wouldn't say analytical, but just a, an, an approach which, which doesn't try to be too too ego driven of, of me telling you whether it's good or not. Yeah, and the thing that that keeps me hooked about Bordeaux is that it's a beautiful place to live. I love it. We've got and my husband's English as well, but we have two girls that we've brought up here. It's a very lucky city in many ways to live in because we have a, it's big enough that you get culture and you get theater and all of those wonderful things we're close to the to the sea we're like an hour away from from the bassin d'Arcachon close to Spain not so far from Italy so it's it's a lovely place to live two hours from Paris um, but the wine industry here it still is a place where you can learn about the world through Bordeaux wine. So you can learn about the economy of the world through Bordeaux wine. Right now, we look at all of the issues with the world economy in, in the States, in the UK, in China. And these things have a direct impact on the wines of Bordeaux in a way that they don't in many other wine regions, because a lot of wine regions sell their wine locally. Bordeaux is 50% sold overseas. So what happens in the world's economy is very, very important to, to what happens here. So that as well, from my point of view as, as a writer and a journalist, I, I find that fascinating as well. Fascinating points, fascinating points to make. Yeah, Paris, Good Food and Wine is generously being brought to you by IOT Shipping. IOT, the Internet of Things. IOT Shipping tracks your value assets using the Internet of Things technology that gives you data points based on temperature, movement, and geolocation. For more information, contact us at iotshipping.xyz. That's iotshipping.xyz. Episode 50 of Paris Good Food and Wine is being brought to you by Paris Food and Wine. You can find them at parisfoodandwine.net and Bordeaux Food and Wine. You can find them at bordeauxfoodandwine.com. I'm Paige Donner, host and producer of Paris, Good Food and Wine. 
Now you can find Paris Good Food and Wine on iHeartRadio, as well as on Spotify. And also, as always, on iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, and Stitcher. So this actually, too, wraps up uh, uh, basically a whole week of Great Wine Capitals, which is a fabulous annual event that takes place all in the different uh, member regions uh, around the world. And this year it was in Bordeaux. Very fun. And I, you know, I'm really, really curious to hear your insight. I know you've participated in past Great Wine Capital events, but you're also a wine writer who travels extensively. I mean, I know you were just in China this summer. Um, you're just back from the Decanter 100 Best Wine Awards. I mean, you are constantly you know, you're constantly traveling for your for your job and your writing specifically for wine. So I wanted to hear your perspective, Jane, on like, number one, what makes Bordeaux so fabulous? You just touched on it a moment ago about the economy and things like that, but from a tourism perspective. And then what are some of the other regions that you've discovered in your travels that you feel are also, you know, top notch? Thanks. So when I first moved here in 2003, I should definitely say straight off, it was not a great wine tourism capital in 2003. There were weird things like practically no wine bars down, downtown. You couldn't really get a good glass of Bordeaux wine and heaven help you if you wanted a glass of Burgundy wine or, or Napa wine. And now that's completely changed. So downtown Bordeaux it has got a huge amount to offer to people who love wine and not just Bordeaux wine. Some of the, I guess, you know, living here particularly, I really appreciate that, that you can go and, and, and drink great wines from around the world. There are a ton of natural wine bars as well, like in Paris. Paris and Bordeaux are probably, and Lyon, uh, you know, three cities where you have a ton of great natural wine bars, organic, biodynamic, that really specialize in that topic. Um, I think historically people would come to Bordeaux and they would go straight out, either to the Medoc to stay somewhere there, or they go over to Saint Emilion. And my recommendation would be for people to make sure they spend a day or two in the centre of Bordeaux, because not only do you have um, the you know the wine bars and, and all that kind of stuff, but you also have Bordeaux. If you look at the history of Bordeaux, a lot of its growth happened downtown from here because this is where the merchants were based. So if you can go into Chartrand, which is the kind of right along the the riverside, and it's where all the negotiants used to have their places where they aged the wine, their warehouses. And now you get a, a wonderful museum that looks at the history of Negociants. There's the Cité du Van, which is that wonderful big new museum, which looks... Bordeaux is probably 10% of the content of that museum. It is about every wine region in the world. I'm going to a Napa wine tasting there. In fact, not just Napa. We're going to, a, to an American wine tasting there tomorrow with wines from four different regions across the States. So, you know, you really do start to see that this is opening up to try and place itself as a true wine capital. When you go out to the vineyards, there are still problems visiting places on Sundays. You can get them, but, but most people don't open on a Sunday. But they, the quality of what they're offering is you know, night and day from what it was like when I first moved here. In terms of other places, so yeah, this summer I went to, um, to, to China to see the opening of the Lafitte Winery in this really amazing place down. Um, it's kind of on the Korean side of China in a, a peninsula called Shandong. And their winery's opened and is now open to the public. But it was this, it's in the middle of this kind of valley. It's in a place called Yantai. And there were probably 20 different wineries open, who, which all had different themes. So there was one that was um, 
like shaped like it's called I think it was called Napa Valley but it was shaped like um you know all these different beautiful um renaissance castles as if you were in the Loire or there were others that were that were kind of ranches with with farms and with cows I mean there, there was every, every kind of different winery that you can imagine so this is a place called Shandong that was fantastic another region of China that I would recommend visiting is Ningxia Ningxia is out by Mongolia so you can even see part of the Great Wall of China when, when you're there but a really beautiful quiet part of the Great Wall where there are no other tourists and you can it's really stunning and there again, it's probably one of the biggest growth areas for wine tourism in China. Um, I'm going to Shanghai next week, so I won't be going out to the wine regions. But but you know, China is definitely a place that's fascinating to visit as a wine lover right now. And I just I always love going to. Um, we're so lucky from here. I love going to northern Italy, and it's easy to drive to from here. I love going to Rioja. I was there last week. Rioja is a three-hour drive from Bordeaux, and probably Rioja has the best wine tourism set up in I, I would think in, in Europe there's so many great places to visit and they what they do that I love there and I wish they did more of here is when you go for a wine tasting in Rioja you get cheese and hams while you're tasting and they're so welcoming and it's just it's wonderful I feel like um for me one of the big points of uh, a welcoming wine region doesn't have to be a great wine capital you know like Bordeaux or Mendoza or Rioja but um but just one thing for me is accessibility, you know, because I remember um, when I've visited around different areas Oh, and when I've come to Bordeaux before, a lot of times, because I usually don't rent a car, a lot of times I'm really, well, either you have to go to the expense of hiring a car and a driver or um, you go where the where you can get a train. So, you know, I've managed to get up to Poyac in a train and, of course, you know, Saint-Similion. And one of the ladies from Napa was talking uh, yesterday at the Cité de Vannes, actually, about how they are constructing a bicycle path from, um, I guess it's from Vallejo. So you can go take the ferry across, you know, San Francisco Bay over to Valencia. And then from Valencia, you can hop on a bicycle and it's going to be done and it's not finished. It's not fully constructed yet. It'll be finished, I think, in two or three years, I think is what she said. And theoretically ride your bike all the way up to Napa. Now that, yeah, now that, that is, that is interesting. Do you, do you find yourself, um, if you're kind of doing more of a DIY and you're not necessarily there in a, in a, if you're maybe there, if you're visiting a region in a more recreational sense, um, what are some limitations that you've encountered? And then what are some of the advantages that then would make you more readily return to a certain region? So that's a, a great question, actually, because it's something that ninety nine percent of wine travelers come up come up with that exact uh, that exact problem. Um, one thing I would say that they've just launched here in Bordeaux, which I tried out about a month ago, is in Fronzac of doing exactly that. So you can take the the um, train from Bordeaux to Libourne, and then you can pick up bikes at Libourne station. And because Fronzac is a, a beautiful region, it's overlooking the Dordogne River, and it um, has a lot of hills. It's a very steep region. So these are electric bikes. So they're great. So you cycle, but as you hit a particularly heap, um, steep hill, you basically flick a switch, and then the electric takes over. Obviously, it's electric as well, so, so that's good. Um, that's super, and I hope that they do more of that in different parts of Bordeaux. They've done a much better job of using the river. For a long time, they kind of forgot the river even existed, but now you can get boats from the central Bordeaux up to Poyac. 
But what I don't think they do well enough, and, and the, uh, you brought up a really good point, is once you get to Poyac Keys, they, then again, bikes would be a wonderful place, even more than Fronzac, because the Medoc's so flat, so it wouldn't really put off anybody to think that you're going to cycle from Poyac. There's there are a lot of chateaus that are within easy reach of, of, that, uh, of those keys. So, so yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, some of my happiest memories of um, wine regions are going just with my family. One of the wonderful things about our job is that wine regions tend to be so beautiful and, and so welcoming to anyone, whether or not you're working in wine. And in fact, cycling is almost always what I enjoy doing. So I was also in, um, in Hermitage recently, now probably four years ago, and did the same thing, took an electric bike around the, the Hermitage Hill. And that was just such a, a great experience. Um, that was hired, I think, from, I think, Charpoutier. One, so one of the producers had electric bikes that you could hire. And I was not hiring it in the context of being a journalist. I was doing it with my family. So I think every wine region think, should think about that. I know that Napa does a good thing as well where when you're getting your um, certification for if you're lead certified which means if you are environmentally sound as far as I know you cannot get the top certification unless people can get to your estate via public transport so some of the estates which are right up on the mountains although they're beautiful and even if they would be organic or biodynamic unless they they're on a bus route then they don't get the, the top certification I think that's correct so there are, so those are the kind of small things that that wine regions can do and I'm sure over the next five years we're going to see a real revolution in that one of the other interesting things they're doing in Bordeaux is they are using um, there's some kind of biofuel which is powering a little electric buses which comes from grapes so <laughs> so yeah just clever things that wine regions need to start to, to think about it are, it's, it's very important for for consumers I think today those are nice little anecdotes in the first actually even I've I've, I've heard of, of those uh, over the course of the last three four days which the topic actually has been quite well covered and well treated. Okay, so we're going to round up, but I want to uh, make sure we get the title of the book and where we can find the book. And then also, I, I know you write for, we know you write for Decanter, um, but I think you have your own website too, New Bordeaux. So can you tell us a little bit of like where we can find you? Thank you. So the book is called Inside Bordeaux. It is the kind of companion piece to a, to a book that was called Inside Burgundy by Jasper Morris, which came out I, a, a while ago now, I think it's just about to be to be reprinted. That is by Berry Brothers Publishing, and so it's a it's a the Berry Brothers is a wine, um, a very very old and wonderful wine business in in the UK. But this is a separate arm that is a publishing company, and it will be available yeah from March or and April. Um, I don't yet. We will have, um, I hope, inside Bordeaux.com. We will have a website where you'll be able to go to directly. So I do have a website, newbordeaux.com. But actually, because I do so much work with Decanter, most of my stories go straight on Decanter, first of all. And I have at New Bordeaux my Twitter and, and Instagram is jane.anson. Um, so, yeah, most of my stuff I put on social media and, and through Decanter. But thank you so much. Okay, bye. Thank you so much, Jane. This is uh, really insightful.
Episode 50 of Paris Good Food and Wine is being brought to you by Paris Food and Wine. You can find them at parisfoodandwine.net and Bordeaux Food and Wine. You can find them at bordeauxfoodandwine.com. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Paris Good Food and Wine. A big thank you to all who helped make this show possible. And especially a grand merci beaucoup from me, your host and producer, Paige Donner. You can find this and past episodes of Paris Good Food and Wine on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, and wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to follow us on Instagram at PageFoodWine and on Twitter at ParisFoodWine. Leave us a review, comments, suggestions, and story pitches at parisfoodandwines.com. <laughs>